Schweiz. Watching the cruises below You know my heart's in the basement My weekend's at an all-time low Well, he's down on the street And he's trying hard to pull some to grow As he's hoping to score But I can't see a letting him go Walk out of the heart Walk out of the mind No, no, no She's so squishy in a satin and tat in a front coat and bippity-boppity hat Oh God, I could do better than that well, She's an old-time ambassador of sweet-talking, night-walking games And she's known in the darkest clubs for pushing ahead of the days If she says she can do it, then she can do it She don't make those claims She's a queen, such a queen That the laughter gets sucked in your brains Now she's leading him on And she's laying right down Yeah, she's leading him on And she's laying right down Well, it could have been me Yes, it could have been me Why didn't I say? Why didn't I say? No, no, no She's so squishy in a satin and tight In a frock coat and bippity-boppity hat Oh, God, I my hotel wall You know my car is so cold that it don't feel like no bed at all I lay down a while and I gaze at my hotel wall And he's down on the street so I throw both his bags down the hall and I fold in the cap cause my stomach feels small there's a taste in my mouth and it's no taste at all well, it could have been me well, it could And you're listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And we began with the faux Bowie doing Queen Bitch. And believe it or not, we are going to tie in the faux Bowie and Man Robson, i.e. Jim Robson, and we are maybe going to tie in Ed the Sock all together. And joining me for today, for this little adventure that we have here happening on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show is Leora Kornfeld. Leora, are you there? Uh, let's try again. Hello. Okay, hi. Hello. Yes. Hello, Leora. Thanks. I'm back here after a four-year absence 
from this show with you. It's like the Olympics. I do it once every four years, but four years is nothing because I'm an alum of this station from more decades ago than I care to say, but what I can tell you is that there's frozen yogurt in the sub-building and uh, join the paintball club. And that's signed. all that matters. That's all that matters. And Earl's sweatshirt playing outside for the welcome back barbecue. AMS barbecue at the yep. at the student nest. And you have brought along, I kind of alluded earlier, well, as we began the show, what did we just hear and what are we going to experience today? Because you have brought in a very special amount of guests. Well, I thought so, too. Oh, look, one's calling you right now. I don't know exactly how you want me to set it up because I don't want to give away the gag or anything, but we have a, a multi-generational uh, show planned for today with a, a Bowie impersonator originally from Vancouver. And again, I don't want to give away too much, who then became um, quite well known in uh, Asia and now is... Uh, has his HQ in Budapest, Hungary, and we're going to find out all about the world of Bowie impersonation from him, and then we're going to make this multi-generational link to... Ed the Sock, possibly. Possibly, but that's not part of the Bowie story. Oh, we really go really far back, and we reach until Jim Robson. What is the connection there? Well, Jim Robson would be would be the father of the Bowie impersonator, but to most Canadians, who is Jim Robson? He's a broadcasting Hall of Famer, and he's famous for that, he will play. Wasn't that his big thing? He will play. And we will, right now, bring on... Actually, right now... Hello, are you there? I am here. Oh, you are... Th oh, uh, it's working. It's working. Live, right. fr live from Budapest. It's, it's working. Live from Budapest, um, all right. Just while we set the levels, who are you? Please, please explain. Who are... Who are you? Well, naturally, I'm Foley Bowie. Uh, what did we hear Foley Bowie right off the bat? We heard a bit of Queen Bitch. Could you please explain Queen Bitch and Foley Bowie? Well, Foley Bowie naturally is a mock rock god and uh, plays songs strikingly similar to those of a certain David Bowie, who is no relation. And uh, Queen Bitch is from the 1971 album Hunky Dory. And we heard that recorded at a studio. Could you please explain? Who else is in Foe Bowie? Uh, Foe Bowie, that, that recording you heard is Foe Bowie and the Reality Tourists. Hey, you just, uh, became, you just became Canadian there. You switched nationalities. I'm sorry. Would you like me to remain in character? <laughs> Which one do you want, Nardwar? Uh, uh, well, actually, I would just be happy, LK, if you spoke into the no, mic. Uh, it, I'm not a It practice. doesn't matter about the guests, does it, Rob? Does it? Oh, sorry, <laughs> does it, Foboey? It doesn't matter <laughs> what you are as long as the host speaks into the mic, right? Oh, yeah, that's much preferred. If you can speak into the microphone, that would be, that would be grand. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. perfectly. Uh, go ahead, please, Leora. You were saying... No, I was just mentioning that you sort of switched nationalities there, a uh, little bit of a flip, because I had mentioned that you were Canadian. But I understand that you are, uh, you're ambidextrous. I'm totally ambidextrous. Mock rock gods move around. Uh, we have to pick up things here and there, and that's uh, something that I've done. So I, I was in Asia with the reality tourists. Uh, we recorded that tune in the studio af uh, after doing a series of live shows. We won some studio time. We thought, we don't have any of our own songs. Let's go and be mock rock gods and recorded a bunch of Bowie songs. So there you are. How do you like to be addressed? <laughs> well, that's a good one because uh, to many people I'm Don, to many people I'm Rob, 
too many people, I'm Bowie Bowie, and it depends. What do they call you at the bank? That's all that really matters. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I don't have a bank. The bank is, uh, is an envelope under the mattress. What time are you there right now? What time are you Skyping the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show? And thank you for Skyping in. Ah, oh, my pleasure. We are sneaking up on 1 a.m. Saturday morning, a very uh, rock god friendly hour. Now, let's bring it back to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Les Turd and the Piles. On a van- <laughs> uh, people can actually find that on YouTube. Lay Turds, Les Turd and the Piles on the Vancouver Show 79. Can you please explain Les Turd and the Piles? Lester and the Piles were probably the world's greatest rock and roll band in an alternate universe. Are you kidding? They, uh, or, you know, post-glam, post-punk, uh, post-grape nuts. They, they just had it all. They're uh, an extraordinary band. UBC-based, all UBC students. They played a lot of, uh, you know, frat houses and that sort of thing. Uh, extraordinary band. Great energy. I, I loved them. And they you- remained strong influence. And if people went to YouTube right now, they would see you playing drums with Late Turd? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, drumming was all I did until this whole Bowie business started up about six years ago when I was in Korea. Did Lee Turd do any Bowie covers? How did you end up on the Vancouver show in 79 at the height of pop punk? Well, we uh, we lost the contest at the pit at the at the old uh, sub building out at, out at UBC. We uh, we were at a battle of the bands, and we were the crowd favorite, but not the judges' favorite. And there was such an uproar when we weren't announced the winners that the uh, the prize was sort of split, and we were given part of the first prize, which was an appearance on the Vancouver show. And people can check that out on YouTube, Later and the Piles. Also, I think it's less, actually. L- oh, yeah. But isn't it Later? No. No, no, no. Well, I like Later and the Piles. You can also check out a reunion show of you at the Royal Vancouver Yacht Club in, I think it is, the year 2010. Yeah, we'd slowed down quite a bit by then, actually. <laughs> Were you playing drums at that point? Oh, yeah, yeah, so, and I think I was still wearing the same outfit. No, no, I, I think I borrowed one of my uh, dad's Hockey Night in Canada jackets to wear for that show. Leora, what is the connection between Rob and Jim? Can you please introduce well, uh, Jim? That's a, that's a very straightforward connection. That would be called a father-son connection, very straightforward. Yeah, whereas my connection to Ed the Sock is much more tenuous. Much more tenuous. I think we're going to have to go for some DNA testing for that. But elastic because he's a sock. People would come over to your house, Rob, from Late Turd and the Piles, and people would freak out that it was Jim Robson's house because your dad is Jim Robson, the sportscaster, who we'd be having a bit later on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. Did people freak out when you gave drum lessons that upstairs was Jim? Yeah, they, they did. It was, you know, to me, he was dad because he's my dad. But to other people, it, it, it had a special connection, a special relationship. So 
I'd hear friends, musicians saying, I called, I called Rob's house and I talked to his dad. Like no one get no one gets that said about their parents when they're, they're trying to reach them on the phone. Well, so I that understood was, that people people were disappointed. It went to the extent that people were disappointed if you answered. They wanted your dad to answer so they could get that feeling of hockey play-by-play. -play. That would be the bonus of calling your house. They didn't want you to answer. They wanted a little bit of him and then you. Yeah, and so I had to cultivate a Jim Robson impersonation to sort of... Um, Can you do some uh, for us? Can you give us a bit? Hello, hockey fans. It's the Vancouver Canucks and the St. Louis Blues live at Vancouver's Pacific Coliseum. How did that sound, Nardwar? Uh, that was pretty amazing. Was anybody disappointed? Did anybody book drums with you and then were disappointed because your dad did not make an appearance? <laughs> you know, he would have liked to make an appearance. He, he played drums when he was a kid, and I think he had aspirations of being a, a jazz musician uh, as well as a baseball player. But when I got my first drum kit he was very enthused he set that up before i had a chance to get home from school what was the vancouver scene at that time like that late turds were part of he's like never going to call them less turds so we have to give that up <laughs> we just have to give it up you were on the vancouver show what was the you know the scene at that time that you were part of like did you play any other clubs did you play frams Frams? No, I frequented Frams, but uh, Lester and the Piles never played Frams. Uh, I don't think we ever played any private clubs. We were mostly a party band, and we were out at UBC a lot. But the Vancouver scene was just so dynamic at that time. I was working at Ernie's Hot Wax, a record store on Denman Street that dealt with a lot of bootlegs and, and independent releases. And, and we handled every genre of music, and every genre had a clique in Vancouver at that time. You could play anything, and you'd get an audience. And did you ever do play-by-play -play yourself? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I was not born with the, uh, with the team sports gene. And, and my dad recognized that early on, so I think he wanted me to be a DJ. He knew I wasn't going to follow in his footsteps with uh, anything sports-related. But you were at CKKSFM, an engineer? Oh, yeah, I played, uh, yeah, I was engineer, uh, an engineer in radio stations all over B.C. for about 20 years. So you did an imitation of your dad. When did this Bowie imitation come forward? Like five or six years ago? You had it in you all these years? Well, uh, people have been telling me since I was in my 20s that I looked like Bowie. And as I was a drummer, I had no aspirations of singing. I didn't play guitar. I just put that in my back pocket. But when I lived in Korea, where I was working as a voice actor, uh, there were a huge number of musicians around, both Koreans and expats, and also a very active live music scene. They had uh, clubs everywhere, and the clubs had their own equipment. So skinny guys like me didn't have to hoist anything around. So that was a dream situation. I, have, I was in a party band in Korea called the Total Assholes, and, uh, and I sang a couple of songs with them from the drums. But singing drummers just look ridiculous. They look like someone at, at a drive-thru. You know, they're leaning to one side, and their hands are full, and they, the audience doesn't know where to look. So I thought this would be so much easier to sing if I didn't have to play the drums at the same time. So that's when I thought I would do a show as, as, as Foey Bowie, and so we did, and we did the show. And it went very well, and so we just kept going with it. You had never pulled out a Bowie before? Uh, well, when Let's Dance was on the radio, you know, you do 
I do parody of that because that was just fun. Because you but always no, did, I, like, even in Late Turd, you did cool covers. Like, you did Gene County on, like, or Stuck on You. What was actually Stuck on You? Was that a Gene County or was that, like, a Cleveland cover? No, that, yeah, it was Wayne County and the Electric Chairs. Which is amazing. Like, even back then, you had no, imita- you know, no reason to do Bowie. You didn't think about doing a Bowie cover? Like, nobody said, you have an amazing voice for this? You'll have to talk to Les about that, because he was our A&R guy. He was the one who chose all the tunes, and he dragged up some amazing stuff. We were doing, you know, Modern Lovers, and we were doing uh, Graham Parker B-sides and things. So he uh, the DeFranco family. Things. I remember the DeFranco yeah! family. Yeah, heart Mr. Love. Yeah. Uh, we're talking right right now to Rob Robson, the son of Jim Robson, and Rob Robson is a Bowie imitator, also part of the early Vancouver musical punk scene as part of Lee Turd and the Piles. Now, you're saying, Rob, that you look like David Bowie. I hate those bands that don't look like Bowie, but sound like Bowie. You look like Bowie, and you sound like Bowie. Have you encountered in this world of tribute bands people that look like Bowie, but don't sound like Bowie, or people that don't look like Bowie, but sound like Bowie? Like, you are a rarity, aren't you? I guess. Yeah, you know, I've, I've seen the whole gamut, and right now I'm playing in a band here in Budapest where there are four other Bowies, and they're all Hungarians, and David Bowie was not the most Hungarian-looking guy, so you can imagine that these, that these other Bowies don't look terribly Bowie-esque. And uh, tribute bands here don't really make the same effort that uh, UK bands do. They don't see the need to, to dress up or do the sound-alike thing. So when I showed up at the first show I did with them, in my uh, thin white fake outfit, they uh, they didn't know what to make of me. What did Jim think of Turd and the Piles? You know, I think he was a secret fan. But no, I, 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 I think he enjoyed it. I think he just liked having, having music in the house as long as we stopped by 9.30. And uh, yeah, he, yeah, I think he liked it. I think he liked the spirit of the band. They were, they were fun. They were nice guys. They were all in school. They're all lawyers now, I think. All lawyers yeah. and one school teacher. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, I'm oh. the only dropout. And again, we're speaking here to Rob Robson, the son of Jim Robson. Who are we gonna be? Who are we gonna be? Who are who are we gonna have? Or we are going to have on an Ardwarda Human Serviette radio show. And thank you for brokering that deal, Rob Robson, very shortly. But we are speaking to Rob Robson. And Jim, of course, is a legendary play-by-play of the Vancouver Canucks. What did Jim think of? I guess he was kind of in the entertainment industry himself. What did he think of you doing voiceovers? What did he think of you not pursuing the traditional, you know, engineer, lawyer route of Lee Turd? I, yeah, I think he just shakes his head. He continues to shake his head. You know, he, he doesn't. He doesn't know quite what to make of uh, what I've made of, of my life. But he, I think he appreciates it at least on a on a subterranean level. And there's a lot of crossover between what what he's done in his career and and what I've done in in dribs and drabs. There's there's a theatrical aspect, and there's uh, a desire for a suspension of disbelief, in uh, you know, from the audience. So. Yeah, there's, there's enough crossover that, 
there's a, there's a connection, and he loves music. He's such a music guy. He's a born musician who never really got a chance to develop it. So we've got uh, we've got bonds all over the place. Does Jim like Bowie? Did he meet him? He must have run into quite a few rock and rollers in the '60s and '70s. <laughs> that would surprise me. You know, they, I, he bumped into people on on the plane, like. Bob McGrath and Ed McMahon, but I and he met. I think he met Neil Young's dad on a flight once, but I don't remember him ever meeting. He might have met a rock star, but not have known it. My mom met uh, Steven Tyler in an elevator once. Love in an elevator. Was, that was the yeah right. <laughs> How many times have you heard that bad gag? <laughs> Just the one. Uh, uh, what did she say to Tyler? Uh, well, he he started the conversation. He just complimented her coat, and uh, and then uh, when they got out of the elevator, uh, someone told my mom who that had been. Beautiful. Oh, what does somebody say about their son that is a Bowie imitator? Uh, that's an excellent question. No one's ever no one's ever told me. Now, I, I'm not sure that I want to know. <laughs> like, if somebody went up to your mom and, hello, Mrs. Robson, your son is a Bowie imitator. What would she say? Well, he's a very nice boy as well, and I think he fixed the microwave once, so I can forgive him almost anything. What is the closest, Rob Robson, that you came to David Bowie? What is the closest you came to David Bowie? The closest. Uh, there- Oh well, we had the uh, we had a gig in the same venue on the same night in 1983. So that that's quite close. What venue was uh, that? Oh, that was BC Place Stadium, and oh, it was Serious the, uh, Moonlight Tour, wasn't that Serious, Serious Moonlight? Moonlight Tour? Yeah, August 9th, 1983, and uh, of course David was playing the main stage, and I was out in the foyer selling programs. <laughs> you were actually working that event. Yes, I was. And you had no idea that later on in life, Rob Robson would become a Bowie imitator? Do you hate that I'm word? Do you hate that word, imitator? Do you, like, you are a Bowie imitator? What is a proper word? Like, when somebody passes away, you, you know, I've heard people say, like, how dare you say the word passes? They, sh- they died. They died. Like, imitator. Like, what do you think of the word? Like, uh, wh- how should I address you? Rob Robson, the Bowie Imitator? Mock rock god is what I prefer. But imitator sounds like a machine. I do agree with you. There's got to be a better word. Impersonator, I think it means something different. We need a new term. I'm putting it to you, Nardwa, to invent a proper term for what I do. Well, Rob Robson, the full mock god, rock god, I guess you kind of answered this indirectly. Why David Bowie and not Nelson? Because you look like Bowie, right? Yeah, I also look a bit like Duff McKagan, but I think there's a lot <laughs> greater percentage in doing Bowie. No, I'm kind of drawn to Bowie's music and and him as a person. David Jones is a person, actually. He's an interesting, interesting person. What he developed and his vision. Uh, I'm just really drawn to him as a as a character and his sub-characters as characters. You- and I'm in Europe. There's a lot of opportunity to do something with that. Do you do any monkeys covers? Because, of course, <laughs> the other David Jones was the David Jones that passed. Well, Rest that in died, peace. That died. Yeah, oh, there you go. Yeah, you almost said passed. <laughs> that, I, I think I would do an Ed the Sock cover before I did a monkeys <laughs> cover. 
And we are speaking here to Rob Robson, winding up with Rob Robson. What have you been recognized as? Have you ever been stopped on the street as looking like David Bowie? Like me, myself, people have said, I look like Jim Morrison. Oh, yeah, you're a dead ringer for Jim Morrison. Uh, like, what have people uh, said you have looked like? Have people said, oh, my God. There's Duff McKagan. Yeah, there's Duff McKagan. I, there is yeah, David Bowie. Duff I've had well, Bowie, of course, Duff McKagan. Uh, someone was saying I looked like David Bowie is what started the whole thing. But I've had Duff McKagan, and I've had uh, Sean Cassidy. I've had Leif Garrett, of all people. Was that back yeah, in the I, day or recently? Leif Garrett was about six or seven years ago. Oh, that's problematic. So, yeah, thank you. Well put. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe if, if people just want me to be someone else, so it's time to follow suit. And right now, you are playing with the Starmans? Yeah, the Starmans. They're this uh, Hungarian Bowie tribute band that uh, I fortuitously lucked into when I moved here, and uh, as I said, they have four other Bowies, but they had this open-door policy, so I was able to uh, ingratiate myself on them, and, uh, and we're doing a show tomorrow night. They play fairly often, because there's, there's a, a Bowie fan base here. Didn't and, you guys uh, just do, didn't you just do, like, the massive festival with them? Yeah, we played the Seaget Festival, which draws 400,000 people annually from all over Europe, so that was a treat. Were there any other tribute bands on the lineup? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and in true European fashion, none of them looked much like <laughs> the bands. They were just, it's really remarkable. You know, if you weren't reading the poster, you'd be looking at the band. Oh now, who are they supposed to be? And then you know, you get a couple of songs. And oh yeah, but there's you know, there are no visual clues whatsoever. So yeah, there were a lot, there were a lot of tribute bands. To who? Tribute to who? And what happens when Bowie meets Bowie? Like, people have talked about having two Jesuses in the room. What happens? Have you played on a bill as an, you know, with another Bowie tribute band? No, that hasn't happened yet. They have conventions. I just learned this recently. There's this annual convention in the UK where they're crazy about Bowie tribute bands. There's millions of them. And they had the convention. And I, I, yeah, I have this sick fascination with the idea of going to something like that. So they make you oftentimes play guitar while the other Bowie in the band sings? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, rhythm guitarist quit, and so I've been, I've been saddled with the rhythm guitarist chair as, as well as singing, singing. It was just fine. I needed, to, I needed to become a guitar player if I'm really going to pull off this Bowie thing. And it's happened. So I play guitar now. I'm very happy about that. But, uh, yeah, so I'm on stage more. Uh, which, when there are five Bowies, it's a hard thing to achieve. So if the guitar is taking me there, then I'm grateful for it. Uh, how, how many songs do you sing, and how many do the other Bowies sing in the Starmans? Well, they've made the mistake of giving me the task of, of creating the set list for the show, so <laughs> my, my percentage is creeping up. But uh, I'm doing... I'm on stage for about 80% of their show now. And sometimes I'm just shaking a tambourine and, and singing backup vocals. But uh, Isn't it kind of weird when the guy that looks and sounds like Bowie ends up on stage with a Bowie trivia band and then leaves the stage and then Bowie continues on? That's exactly what the local media are saying. <laughs> but they're saying it in, in Hungarian. Exactly. So we don't exactly. really know what they're saying. Is no, I'd like to. 
<laughs> is Bowie popular in South Korea? Absolutely not. Really? <laughs> no, they, they, they'd stand there in stock silence until you played Under Pressure because they're mad for Queen there. So, you know, they'd be, as soon as they heard that song, they were fine. But thankfully, there are a lot of expats, a lot of British expats in, in South Korea. So we had a fan base there. And, uh, of course, there's Bowie fans all over Europe, especially Italy and the UK. Have so you I'm ever, on fertile ground. Have you ever been to North Korea? I got close. I got very close. But no, not, I've not got to North Korea. What about vinyl in North Korea? Vinyl? Yeah. What about it? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. That's an excellent question. Can you still go and find Wayne County in the electric chairs? Oh, yeah, okay. In, in Hyono's hot wax somewhere in, in Pyongyang. I don't know. What are the names of the other Bowie tribute acts? Because, again, people are going to hear, right? Uh, we are going to hear heroes. Who is that by? And what are the other Bowie acts? That I've been in? Well, I've, uh, I have a band called the Diamond Dogs, which was the stripped-down, naughty version uh, where we did early 70s stuff, the lovely, lovely, naughty stuff. And then the Reality Tourists, which is the larger band, the 10-piece band with backup singers and everything, where we covered everything. And that's what and we're going to hear, right? We're going to hear Heroes? Yeah, Heroes by uh, the Reality Tourists. This is live in Seoul, Korea. In Seoul, Korea. What are the names of the other Bowie tribute bands, not your own, just in general? Like, you mean those good zinger tribute bands? Like, like Bow Wow Wow House? Bow Wow Wow House. Or, the, <laughs> I like this one, the Stone Temple Co-Pilots. <laughs> That's good. Shania Twin. Or Shania Slip Naughty by Nature. Slip Naughty by Nature. Yeah, any of those? I should know this, and I bet there's some gems out there, but I have no idea. What exactly were you doing at the HBC Underpass in Seoul, Korea? Oh, God, how would you know about that? Uh, uh, we were uh, a group of people singing... Uh, what did we sing? We, we, the acoustics down there were good. It was this pedestrian walkway under the street and had lovely acoustics. So we got half a dozen friends together to sing uh, a song for uh, uh, a wedding in Ireland that we couldn't attend. So we sent the song along instead. Amazing Grace, that's what we did. Thank you, yeah. thank you so much for Skyping in all the way from Hungary. Hungary, this is amazing. Skype. Oh, my pleasure. No, it's, it's a real treat. A, a real treat to meet you electronically, not while you're a legend. So we heard off the top again. What did we hear to begin the show? What are we going to hear one more time to end the show? And how can people find you? Well, you heard Queen Bitch to start the show. Uh, and you're going to hear our version of Heroes, which is based on a live uh, David Bowie version. And uh, you can find Foey Bowie and the Reality Tourists on Facebook. And you can find Foey Bowie at foeybowie.com. And you can send Foey Bowie a bloody email at foeybowie at gmail.com. What about the Starmans? Oh, the Starmans. The Starmans are ubiquitous. They're, they're on Facebook as well. If you're in Budapest, you could come to the show at Musicum uh, later this evening. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful show. And, uh, yeah, the Starmans have got tons of stuff on YouTube. And uh, they've got this revolving door so that you might not see me on all their videos. But I, I do show up from time to time on them.
They are quite an internet band. They have quite an internet presence, the Starmans, don't they? Yeah, I think they've got naked pictures of a filmmaker, so they get they get a lot of coverage. And Les Turds and the Piles on the Vancouver Show. People can check it out right now on YouTube. Les Turds and the Piles on the Vancouver Show, oh, yeah. 1979. And see you on drums, on drums, doing a Jane Wayne County cover. That was amazing. I'm on drums. And yeah. right now, we are going to have, probably phoning very shortly, Jim Robson. What can you say about Jim Robson, your father? That's sort of a wide-open question, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of broad. $1.50. No, he's a, really, uh, people don't recognize that it took so much brain power to do what he did. But he's a, he's a very, very bright man, but he's so unassuming that you don't realize how much brain power is involved in, in what he did and in, in his career. So I have an immense amount of respect for his uh, mental ability and his ability to prepare. Uh, it just his ability to do the work is such an inspiration. Uh, is it easier now to be a play-by-play -play guy? I have no idea. Uh, I, uh, I imagine the money's probably better. <laughs> but, uh, uh, it, I think there were there were certainly more examples for people to follow. When my dad started, there weren't, you know, there was Foster Hewitt, and that was pretty much it. Uh, and so these, the early guys were just writing the book. But now they, 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 there's so many people doing it and so many ways to hear other people doing it that, uh, yeah, it must be much easier for people doing it now. Well, thank you so much, Jim Jr., Rob Robson, <laughs> of... Foey Bowie, and right now we're going to hear uh, Heroes. Is there anything else you would like to say to the people out there at all? Please do come and see my shows. I'm planning to uh, pick up where David left off. He had to leave the reality tour back in 2004, so I'm going to finish it for him. 15 shows left to go. Do come and see me in Europe. Leora? What can I say except do do loot do And are you almost... I, I stole... Say, I know. Yeah, I stole, you... Um, Thanks so much, Rob, and do-do-loo-do. Do-do. You. You Rob, are... And I... I'll drink all the time. Cause we're lovers. And that is a fact. Yes, for lovers, and that is that. Oh, nothing will keep us together. We can beat them forever and ever. Oh, we can be heroes. Just for one day What you say I say
like a dolphin can swim Oh, nothing We've tried them away We can't beat them Forever and ever But we can be heroes Just for one day
And you are still listening to Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have on the line right now? Hello, are you there, caller? Yes, I am, and I'm your caller. Who are you? My name is Jim Robson. Who are you, Jim, for people that don't know? Well, I've just enjoyed listening to our oldest son, Rob, with an amazing performance of David Bowie music. And uh, so I am his father, but I'm also a retired sportscaster who worked uh, 47 years in BC broadcasting. Now, right off the bat, your son, Rob, what can you say about your son? Is he really a Bowie lover? Are you a Bowie lover? Well, I'm not. The music came along after my uh, connection with uh, disc jockeying or music. Uh, but I certainly appreciate uh, the talent. And when Rob was growing up, he was very much into music, but I never realized he could sing. We didn't hear him sing. He played the drums. He could play piano, guitar. He was very talented and versatile, but we didn't know he could sing. But we found out since he started doing these impersonations, and I'm not sure whether that performance was in Seoul, Korea, or Budapest, Hungary, but he's been singing all over the world. That was recorded live in Seoul. In Seoul. Right. Now, what was it like having Rob as a drummer? Like, people would come over to your house, Jim, to have drum lessons from the drummer of Lay Turd and the Piles. That's right. My, our son was one of the Piles. Uh, no, our basement was his domain, and uh, we used to ask him to put uh, blankets uh, up over the windows and the doors to try and keep the noise down for the neighbors. But they were pretty good in uh, keeping it till you know, at 9 o'clock they would usually shut down. But uh, that basement vibrated with those drums. He just started out with a pad, you know, just a, a small pad. When he was a very young boy, he was about 8, I suppose, uh, his mother took him to the Caresdale Community Center for an interview. They were a community band there. And uh, they asked this little guy what he wanted to play. And somehow in the communication, I think he wanted to play a trumpet or uh, some other instrument, but it came out drums somehow. So he uh, took it up at an early age. And when he was going to the Courtney Music, uh, music School in the summertime uh, down at the the dock where we got on the ferry to go to Vancouver Island, all the kids would be coming in with their little clarinets and their trumpets and everything in easy-to-handle cases, and here comes our son with a series of big cardboard boxes filled with drums because we didn't have cases yet. And uh, I often thought, why didn't he take up the clarinet? But it was uh, his love, and uh, he made the most of it. Did you, Jim, bump into any rock and rollers on all the flights you took in the 1960s? You were involved in the entertainment industry. Did you bump into any rock and rollers? Well, not really. Uh, you know, I started in an era when rock and roll hadn't started yet. I was in radio as a 17-year-old from 1952 to 56 in Port Alberni and playing records, uh, being a, a disc jockey, among other things, and doing sports. And when I came to Vancouver in 1956, I was basically in sports, but I did other things as well, and including a morning show. In fact, Rob uh, got me a couple of sheets of promoting our morning show with the music we were playing in 1959. So rock and roll was rolling by then, but 
my first connection, I guess, with it would have been playing records. And Elvis Presley, uh, I remember his early music in Port Alberni, I'd play that in the management and said, I don't know if you should play so much of that. And, of course, the kids liked it. This would be in 1955 and 6. And so, and Bill Haley and the Comets. And, but as far as meeting uh, entertainers, I can't say I, I met any famous musicians or famous entertainers. What was CJAV Port Alberni like? Where did you hear about it? Well, I wanted to be a broadcaster from the time I was about six years old. And I think it helps to have a certain goal at an early age, at least in my era, because it was easier to get in the business then than it is now. But uh, I always wanted to be a broadcaster. So in 19, I guess I was 16, I came into New Westminster for a, a series of interviews students had from Maple Ridge High School. We came in on a bus to talk to different people about careers. And I was in grade 11 in high school, and one of the men we could talk to was Bill Hughes, who was the manager of CKNW Radio at that time. And I told him I wanted to get into broadcasting. So he uh, sort of tested my sincerity, I guess, and said, well, contact him when I'm in grade 12 the following year, which I did. And uh, he arranged for me to do an audition at CKNW in New Westminster in 1952, I guess I would be. I was 17 by then, and he uh, gave me some good advice. He said, uh, write a letter to radio stations. Uh, he gave me a list of seven and their managers' names of town, towns around British Columbia. At that uh, era, they hired a summer replacement in these small-town stations, and he said, tell them all about yourself, but don't put anything negative in there. Don't tell them you're having trouble with grade 12 mathematics and you were failing in high school. Uh, but tell them all the things you've, you've done and uh, send out this audition. So I sent it to seven radio stations around the province. And I think only three replied. Uh, but out of that, I got a job in Port Alberni without any experience, with, uh, without any training, but they hired me uh, to start. I was writing commercials, and I was a poor typist, but a 16-year-old girl who ran the copy department taught me how to write radio commercials. And then I did part-time broadcasting, and the sports announcer had just left the station, so they said, you know sports, so go ahead. So that's how it all started for me. What was it like calling basketball in Port Alberni? Well, it was excellent basketball. Uh, this is an era when the Canadian Senior Men's Basketball Championship really meant something. It was front-page news in the Vancouver newspapers and well-covered. The Alberni Athletics were a very strong team, and they had a good arrangement with the McMillan-Bodell and the Mills in Port Alberni. They would bring in basketball players, and they would have jobs in local industry and play basketball for Alberni, and they had some excellent players, some of them local, but also some of them imported. The playing coach was from Seattle University, where he was the captain of an outstanding NCAA team, and he became the playing coach. His name is Elmer Spidel. He's still there in Port Alberni, and he was a great player and a great coach and the right man for the job, and they wound up winning the Canadian Championship. And the year they won the Canadian Championship, one of their opposing teams used to bring in American teams in the weekend games in Port Alberni, and one of the players who played two games in the old Alberni Athletic Hall became one of the greatest basketball players of all time, and that was Elgin Baylor. 
Elgin Baylor played two games in the Alberni Athletic Hall in 1955, and I was, uh, of course, broadcasting the games at that time. Did the Globetrotters do a tour? Yes, the Harlem Globetrotters uh, played in Alberni. They had a team traveling with them called the Boston Whirlwinds, and uh, their star player was a player named Bevo Francis, who was from a small college in Kansas, but he was a phenom who scored like 50 points a game. On more than one occasion, he had over 100 points in a game. And uh, the Boston Whirlwinds would play the, uh, the uh, Harlem Globetrotters in these games as they toured North America. But in Alberni, the basketball team was so strong that the Alberni Athletics played the Boston Whirlwinds at 6 o'clock, and the gym was packed, and the crowd had come early to see a serious basketball game involving these two teams. And then after that, the Harlem Globetrotters played the Alberni Senior B team. And uh, a lot of the fans had come to see the Alberni-Boston game rather than the Globetrotters. But in those days, of course, the Globetrotters played all over the country and played over here, even played in wood fiber in Howe Sound, if you can believe it. But uh, that was a memorable uh, event, of course, in the Albernies. Were you at the Wood Fiber gig? No, no, but uh, a man that uh, I knew that died not too long ago in Vancouver, his name is Richie Nickel, was an outstanding athlete. And the Harlem Globetrotters were on a tour, and they had played in Vancouver, and they had a couple of injuries, and they were short of players. Richie Nickel was a star in local basketball in Vancouver. That would have been in the... Oh, probably mid-40s, late-40s. And uh, they were playing over in wood fiber and the next night, and they were short of players. So they took Richie Nickel, who was white, the only white in the all-black Harlem Globetrotter lineup, and he played for the Harlem Globetrotters in that game in wood fiber probably in 1946 or seven, somewhere around there. And we're speaking to Jim Robson, and if anybody has any questions for Jim Robson, the number is 604-822-2487, UBC CITR. And of course, Jim Robson, well, NW, actually not NW, 1130, CKNW News 1130 now, called you Mr. Hockey before he... He was called Mr. Hockey. Well, of course, that's Gordy Howe, who's Mr. Hockey. And I don't pretend to be uh, anyone as famous as that. But uh, they promoted the games. Of course, I worked at CKWX for 14 years, and we did hockey and baseball and football and high school basketball and all kinds of different sporting events and did the morning show and had a long, tough uh, string of years there with a young family, too, at that time. So it wasn't a great time for my wife and the four kids, but uh, I did a lot of things at that station, including hockey, and I guess in the promotions they might have used that term. And then in 1970, when the NHL came to Vancouver, then I moved over to CKNW to do NHL hockey. Was Al Arbor almost a Canucks coach? Yes, uh, one of my uh, big mistakes. Uh, I went on a morning sports cast from... Montreal, the NHL draft meetings at 8 o'clock in the morning in Vancouver, I announced boldly that Al Arbor will be the next coach of the Vancouver Canucks. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, the Vancouver Canucks hired their new coach, and his name was Bill McCreary. 
I went and talked to Al Arbor, who I'd been in communication with at the meetings, and I said, what happened, Al? And he said, well, I took a look at the Vancouver ownership situation. It seemed to be unstable, which it was at that time. And he said, I had this opportunity to go to a new team, the New York Islanders, so I decided on the New York job instead of going to Vancouver. So my scoop was uh, turned out to be not a scoop, and Al Arbor never did become coach of the Canucks. What about the Coach House Inn in North Vancouver? In 72, is that where the players stayed? Uh, I'm not sure if any stayed there, but they I would say some partied there. Uh, and I wasn't in on those occasions. But it was a, a gathering place for the players, especially those that lived on the North Shore. And quite a few uh, did live on the North Shore. It was quite easy access to the Pacific Coliseum just over the Second Arrows Bridge and onto their homes. And uh, I guess some of the single guys might have stayed at the uh, coach house, but the coach house was uh, quite a hangout for some of the players. Were you allowed to broadcast at the 72 series? Like, you being the home guy, did they bring in? Were you at the 72 series? Like, how did you feel about them bringing in other announcers? Well, of course, the rights were held by, uh, I can't remember who held the rights at that time, but Foster Hewitt did that series on radio and uh, and television, I guess, too. I can't remember exactly uh, who was all involved, but I was at the game. But just as a media representative sitting up in the press box, so I didn't broadcast, but I'll never forget it because uh, Vancouver got quite a reputation at that game by booing the Canadian team. And after the game, Phil Esposito made his famous speech complaining about the attitude of the Canadian fans, especially those in Vancouver, because they were trying their best. And, uh, you know, he was making quite a case for the Canadian team, which eventually won that memorable series. But I always point out something happened during that game is that started the booing, and it's often not mentioned or overlooked. But during the game, the Russians were leading, and uh, the crowd was unhappy about that. But during the game, the fine young Russian goaltender, Tretiak, came out of the net all the way to the faceoff circle to his right to clear the puck. And when he did so, Frank Mahovlich who was not a popular player in Vancouver anyway, but uh, he was, of course, a member of the Canadian team. He held Tretiak down on the ice and wouldn't let him get back into the goal, all while the play was going on. Uh, With only one referee working the game, there was nobody looking back to see what was happening, and the play was going on, and the crowd noticed Mahovlich holding Tretiak back. Now, not only was Russia winning the game, but the fans thought this is extremely unsportsmanlike, and uh, they were very unhappy with it, and they started to boo Frank Mahovlich very loudly. And it just carried on, and before long, the whole building was booing. And uh, I don't think it was mentioned too often by Phyllis Bezito and others that that's how the booing really started. Was Vancouver known for boos after that? Did you hear boos at that level from Vancouver fans? Well, yes, uh, I think Vancouver fans are generally quiet. Uh, Maybe now with the rock music pounding in the arenas and uh, the big screen and things have have changed a lot. But in the earlier years, uh, Vancouver had a reputation of a show-me kind of crowd. 
you know, very quiet and uh, give them something to cheer about, and they would cheer, but otherwise they would just observe quietly. So it was a pretty quiet building, uh, as was other Canadian rinks, especially Calgary, uh, for another place where the crowd was very quiet. But uh, the Vancouver fans are, were a tough crowd, I felt. Uh, they uh, would say, show me. If you showed them and they liked what they saw, they would respond in a positive way. But uh, they were at times critical of the, the team that wasn't winning, and the Canucks did have some tough seasons when they didn't win a lot. And we're speaking to Jim Robson, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR, or Twitter, at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R-D. And we will ask Jim your question. Now, Jim, you did the play-by-play for Hockey Night in Canada for the Canucks in the blues of the Pacific Coliseum. Did anybody stumble down the stairs? Like, the greens were very high. Well, actually, our broadcast location for television was uh, the front row of what was then the press box, which is right in among the seats, just above the lower level, and at the sort of the base of the blue seats, which was the upper level of the Coliseum. So, and we were wide open. There was no uh, protection or anything like that. And on one particular game, uh, the Vancouver Canucks shut out the New York Islanders. And uh, at the end of the game, Babe Pratt, who did the uh, sort of analysis with uh, Ted Reynolds on television uh, picked the three stars and they announced uh, the Hockey Night in Canada three stars of tonight's game are and the first star was Billy Smith the goaltender for the New York Islanders. The second star was Gary Smith of the Vancouver Canucks who got the shutout and the Vancouver fans were very upset by the selection of those three stars and they started to throw debris down on the uh, guys that were wearing the pale blue jackets as Hockey Night in Canada crew, and that was um, myself, and I think uh, probably Bill Good Jr. was working with me that night. I can't remember who it would have been with me, but uh, we were exposed to, uh, you know, uh, coffee cups and a sort of lightweight debris raining down on us and people going by yelling, and how could you not pick Gary Smith, the first star? So we were really open to the public, but the people were generally well-behaved. We didn't really have any major problems, although in that location there was a metal railing at the base of the stairs where people could come down and fall, and it blocked our view of the north goal to our left, and we had to sort of duck and dive to have a clear look at the goal to our left. And uh, a guy named Ray Waynes, an excellent uh, TV cameraman with the CBC, every year complained to the PNE about that metal rail and asked that they if they would remove it and they said no we can't remove it it's a, it's a safety factor and finally after many years they changed it to a, a clear uh, glass or plexiglass or whatever it was called a, an open type of a screen that you could see through but for many years it was quite a challenge to uh, see the North Goal when you worked on television. In regards to players, who was the hardest player to make out? Was there a hard player to make out? Well, you go you identify the players by number. 
I'd be lost without the numbers. But in those days, we're talking of when I first started in 1956 was my first pro hockey game. Players did not wear helmets, and there weren't very many players. Each team had three lines and two defensive pairs and one goaltender. And and then as the years went on, the line the rosters got a little larger, and then helmets started to appear, which made it more difficult to identify players. You didn't know a redhead from a, a blonde or whatever. But in the earlier years, you could identify the players much easier. So then, and with so many more teams coming into the league, like now, for example, 30 teams, you basically have to memorize the numbers on the players to identify them. Uh, some you can identify by their size or their style or... You know, and of course, the ones without helmets, the Guy Lafleur with his hair flying and big Harold Snaps and Ron Duguay with his long hair. And, uh, you know, there were players you could recognize quite easily, but most of them you recognize through numbers. And, uh, and one thing I always felt was you had to watch the warm up before the game to see who was out there and tick off all the names, and make sure you got all everybody on the ice that was in the lineup. And, uh, that way you would watch them and memorize, especially the visiting team number. You knew the home team well, but the visiting team, sometimes you hadn't seen much. In those earlier years, there were very few games on television, so they had come into town without having seen them for many weeks, and so you had to do a little homework before the game started. Did you, and they're speaking to Jim Robson, did you, Jim, when you say tick down a player's name, did you use a Quaker box as the writing material that you wrote it on? No, I, uh, we used to take my shirts to the laundry, and when you got your shirt back, it was folded with a piece of cardboard, 8 by 11 uh, white cardboard. And, and I used to save those shirt cardboards. I would tear it in half, so I would use one half for the home team and one for the visiting team. And I, in the afternoon of the game, I would write down in nice big block letters the names of all the players, their number, and a little information about each one, their age, uh, maybe where they were drafted, or some, maybe their birthday or a, a scoring streak, or some little information about each one. I'd, I'd make these cards up at home, and uh, so I, when you're doing this, you sort of memorize them more, and, uh, and I helped, had help with the family, too. Uh, with four kids at the dinner table before I went to the game, they would test me on numbers. They would... Uh, I'd give them a copy of the visiting team, and they would call out a number, and I'd have to identify who it was. But uh, that's what I used to use in front of me. You put as much information in front of you as you could so you wouldn't be shuffling through papers if there was some development, and you'd have all that information right in front of you. I kept a summary of the game while I was broadcasting. I still have the books of all those games, and... I'd use a, a secretary's notebook, a little notebook, and uh, I would write down along the left column all kinds of little uh, information, uh, power play and penalty killing and goaltending averages and the officials and all that information, even the weather. And uh, so I was well prepared when the game started and tried to keep everything right in front of me. Jim Robson, Randy Holt tried to scare you? Bobby Orr threw a tape at you? Like, you are such a nice guy. How dare they? Well, the uh, Bobby Orr story was in the Boston dressing room at the Pacific Coliseum. I had been on a, a television panel at, at the end of the calendar year, 
it'd be about 1970, I guess New Year's 1972. And uh, the Boston Bruins had just won the Stanley Cup that spring by beating the New York Rangers. And I was on this panel with Ted Reynolds, and I said uh, a lot of people out in the Vancouver, at least, were disappointed to see the Boston Bruins win another Stanley Cup because for many years Vancouver was a farm team of the New York Rangers, and some of the New York players had played in Vancouver before going to the NHL, and a lot of fans in this area were hoping the Rangers would beat Boston in that series. So uh, the Boston players were in town for a, a game against the Canucks, and I guess some of them had seen this on television, and uh, I wasn't aware that they had seen these comments, and heard them so before the game the next day i guess it'll be or the two days later i'm interviewing the boston coach who was tom johnson i used to do that before every game with a tape recorder and i had my briefcase down at my feet while i was interviewing tom johnson and someone came in and took my briefcase while i was doing the interview and took it into the boston dressing room and dumped it into a garbage can and in that briefcase were my headset microphone and all my hockey stats and books and things that I needed to do the game. So when I finished the interview, I looked around and my briefcase was gone. And an usher who was along that uh, uh, temporary fence, they sort of held the fans back near the visiting dressing room at the Pacific Coliseum. The usher pointed to the Boston dressing room. So I went in there. And the Bruins were all sitting in there getting ready for the game. And one of the guys said something, oh, here's the guy that wished that the Rangers had beaten us in the Stanley Cup final. And uh, they, some of them booed, and actually some were starting to throw, they were taking the tape off their, uh, after wrapping their sticks, and they were throwing pieces of tape at me. And Bobby Orr actually called me a poor Canadian. Because also on that interview with Ted Reynolds, I criticized Alan Eagleson for his antics in the Canada-Russia series. And when he gave the Russian fans the finger, and I said it was quite an embarrassment to Canadians to see how Eagleson reacted. Well, at that time, Alan Eagleson and Bobby Orr were very close. Eagleson was Bobby's agent, and Bobby went to bat for him many, many times until later, of course, he found out what Eagleson was doing improperly with uh, NHL Player Association finances. But at that time, he was a Eagleson fan. So the comments I made about Eagleson prompted Bobby to say, you know, that was not up to you to say that, and you're a poor Canadian, or something to that effect. And in the meantime, I said, I just came in to get my briefcase. I needed to do the game. And uh, they weren't going to help me out. But the stick boy for the visiting team was... Dan Jukic, who now does the race announcing at an exceptional job at Hastings Racecourse. At that time, he was the visiting stick boy, and he was in the uh, Bruins dressing room, and I looked over, and he pointed at the garbage can. So I reached into the garbage can and hauled up my briefcase while they were throwing rolls of tape at me, and I got out of there because I was totally intimidated and couldn't wait to get my briefcase and get out of there and broadcast the game. 
amazing Jim Robson. And we're speaking here to Jim Robson, live on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show, 604-822-247, 604-822-CITR, UBC-CITR, or tweet at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R, and we will ask your questions. Jim Robson, I was curious, did announcers have any rivalry? Did they make fun of each other? Was there a pre-prepared announcement for big goals? Like Cuthbert had the golden goal with Sidney Crosby, but that kind of sounded almost pre-written down. I know he didn't do that, but did announcers have rivalry? Did they ever write stuff down? Were there ever bad announcers? Did they make fun of other announcers? Well, I guess to a degree, but uh, actually there was a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, group together. You would talk to each other before a game and exchange information. So a lot of the times the uh, announcer of the other team and you, you'd get together and uh, you were friends. And, uh, you know, I worked with uh, a lot of guys uh, over the years that were NHL announcers. And uh, But I do remember a situation in uh, New Jersey where uh, there was a, I don't know whether it was a fist fight, but it was close to it between Dan Kelly of the St. Louis Blues and the announcer of the New Jersey Devils, and I can't remember his name now, but he used to stand up and sort of play to the crowd around him when he was working, and I guess uh, Dan had said, told him to sit down, and uh, there was an exchange, so uh, because of that exchange, they then moved the visiting broadcasters to what they called the halo, which was a, a sort of a metal deck away around up high in the arena, the Burn Arena in New Jersey. So you can't imagine it being further away from a sporting event than having to work there. But that was to get the visiting broadcasters away from the home guy. But, uh, no, I don't think uh, I can think of you know, there's some guys that uh, had unique uh, style, like uh, the Pittsburgh announcer, who, uh, you know, he would beat him like a rented mule, and Elvis has left the building, and Mike Lang, his name was, a real fun guy and a colorful character. So some guys had a series of uh, sayings they used, and uh, they were colorful, but I was never in the colorful category myself. Now, we have a question to Jim Robson from sellwithstew.com, and he mentions, quote, those old Canucks jerseys. He loved the old jerseys, which makes me also think about Canucks winning in 82, or even actually in 94. Did you see any Canucks win the Stanley Cup shirts or hats? Because we know those were made. Well, I never did see them, but, uh, of course, they were superstitious and would never, uh, they'd hide the champagne and hide those kind of things until the event happened. And, of course, it hasn't happened, and it it uh, might be a while before it does as far as the Canucks winning a Stanley Cup. But, no, I never uh, saw any of that. But there have been a, a lot of different Canuck uniforms that, uh, uh, to me, the D- Detroit Red Wings have got the best uniform in hockey, and it's been the same for decades, and they don't sort of fool around with the uniform. Even Toronto and Montreal have made a few minor adjustments to theirs, but uh, it's the team that makes the uniform, and 
when the Vancouver Canucks wore those V, double V uniforms in, in sort of an orange, yellowy color with black and red trim, a lot of the people have said that's the worst hockey uniform of all time. But, you know, after the Canucks went to the Stanley Cup final in 1982 wearing that uniform, the next year when we went on the road, we saw young fans wearing that uniform because it was so unique. And the Canucks at that time were an interesting competitive team. So that uniform became popular with a certain segment of fans, even though many uh, people were very critical of it. But the Canucks have over the years changed. Now they've sort of gone back to the original blue, green, and white uniforms they started with in 1970. So uh, a lot of it's marketing, of course. You have the, the third jersey, and they came up with all these different style jerseys because they do sell a lot of them, and that's the uh, main reason for making uniform changes. You touched the playoff trophies, and so did Stan Smeal. What did you feel like touching them? Because a couple people touched the trophies, and it's not a good idea to touch the trophy, according to some. Of course, Crosby touches the trophy and wins, but what do you think about touching the trophy? Well, uh, sports is surrounded by uh, superstition. You know, players will lace their left skate first all the time and and uh, step on, never step on on a blue line when they come on the ice to step over it, little things like that. And uh, there's all kinds of superstitions about touching trophies in all sports. Uh, you know, like, for example, a team going for the Stanley Cup, they're often presented with a trophy to the earlier stage. The conference championship has a trophy. And I know Trevor Linden received it in 94 and held it over his head, and the lid flew off when he held it up. And he was holding the trophy, and then they went on to play in the Stanley Cup final with an excellent team that came within a whisker of winning but lost in seven games. But a lot of the teams, they don't want to touch that trophy. They'll just wait for the, the major prize, the Stanley Cup. But I don't think all players uh, follow those superstitions. But a lot of people in sports are superstitious, and uh, I've always sort of avoided touching that championship trophy until they've won it. Jim Robinson, John from CKNW started the towel idea, the Canucks fans waving the white towel. He started that idea for the fans? Yes, uh, Roger Nielsen, of course, was uh, credited with that. And at the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs of 1982, the conference final, the Canucks played in Chicago and uh, won the first game 2-1 in a long overtime game. Jim Nils scored the goal that won it, and Richard Berdour and Tony Esposito were the goaltenders in a great duel. And then in game two, the uh, Chicago Blackhawks won, and they scored a, some power play goals, and the Canucks felt they were being uh, poorly uh, treated by the official. The referee was Bob Myers. And uh, so during the third period, when uh, Chicago scored, I think their fourth goal probably made it about 4-1, uh, Roger wanted a protest at the Vancouver bench. And Roger Nielsen was the... A mild-mannered guy who'd never say a bad word. He would never uh, give officials a bad time, a real gentleman. And he wanted to show some form of, form of protest. And Roger, uh, on the bench, it was beside Tiger Williams. And Tiger said, let's throw sticks on the ice, you know, which had been done in junior hockey. And Roger said, no, 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 we've done it. We'll do something more subtle than that. So he reached back and took a towel 
off a line of towels behind the players at the bench, put it on the end of a hockey stick and held it up at the bench as a sign of surrender. And some players then did the same thing. And uh, actually, the referee then stopped the game and banished Roger Nielsen from the game and uh, three or four Canuck players, although they didn't get them all. It was some that held the stick, uh, the towels up that didn't get caught. Like one was Lars Moline, a little Swedish forward. He had, he was holding a towel up, and they never threw him out. But and uh, so Roger walks across the ice in Chicago, and he's out of the game. Well, this was about two or three days before Game Three, which was back in Vancouver. So uh, when Roger held the towel up. The league overreacted. They fined the Vancouver Canucks $10,000 and uh, were very critical of Roger Nielsen and the Canucks. John Pluel was the um, sort of the promotions manager of CKNW Radio, and he saw the potential of this towel waving. And he went to a guy in Gastown named Butts Giroux, who had a, uh, a sort of a t shirt shop where you could get names written on a T-shirt and he'd sell them in the, no matter, you know, different logos and different slogans on these T-shirts. And John Pluel asked him if he could get uh, something like 5,000 towels made up uh, in time for the, I think it was a Tuesday night game in Vancouver. And Butt says, sure, we can pull out all the stops and get working on that. And so Pluel went out and sold a sponsor. I think it might have been Super Value Stores. I can't remember who it was. But he got a sponsor to put the logo on the towels, and they printed these towels up. And then on the radio for two days, they promoted this and asked fans to come to the game, bring a white towel. And if the fans didn't have a white towel with them when they got to the Pacific Coliseum, they were handed one of these CKNW promotional towels. So now you've got 15,000 people with white towels, and when the Canucks came on the ice, Everyone started to wave the towels. Now, Roger did start the uh, idea, but John Poole was the guy who really grabbed it and turned it into a big promotion. And now when you watch the Super Bowl, when you watch the World Series, when you watch a lot of uh, major playoff games in many sports, basketball, hockey, whatever, it's not uncommon to see the spectators waving a towel or a, a different colored Sometimes, like, it'll be orange in some cities, it'll be green in others, but and that tradition really started with Roger Nielsen and the Canucks in 1982. Uh, Jim Robson, it is amazing that you even remember the T-shirt shop. That, that is <laughs> well, incredible, the T-shirt shop. Well, Butch Daru was quite a character in town, so and Vancouver was a smaller city then, too, so uh, you could remember things like that. Jim Robinson, what about Tiger Williams? Like, Tiger Williams ripping the chain off Billy Smith's shoulder, actually, off his neck, and Tiger Williams punching Mike Bossy in the face. Well, you had a better memory than I have, and you weren't even around then. Uh, no, I don't remember those incidents. I remember how competitive Tiger was. He would do anything to win. One of his closest friend with the Toronto Maple Leafs was uh, Lanny McDonald. And it was a great line with uh, Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald, and Tiger Williams. And then Tiger got traded to Vancouver, which is a major trade. And that when they played the Calgary Flames in the playoffs, Tiger checked his good friend, 
uh, Lanny McDonald, and he checked him in a vicious fashion with his stick and whatever else to stop him from scoring because, of course, Lanny was a tremendous player and a great goal scorer. And I'm sure Lanny couldn't believe how his former friend uh, played such a rough style, but it was playoff time, and Tiger was going to do everything to to win. In fact, he scored an overtime goal in that series that proved to be a very key goal as the Canucks uh, then went on to get to the Stanley Cup final. But uh, Tiger was that kind of a guy. He was uh, very competitive, and I always thought he'd turn out to be a coach. He always carried a briefcase on the team bus, and he'd be studying and talking to coaches about drills and everything. And uh, he did get involved in some junior hockey programs, but uh, he never did get a chance to be a coach. I was curious, and we're speaking here to Jim Robson, 604-822-2487, UBC CITR, if anybody has any questions, or tweet at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. I was curious, was Tiger Williams the first guy to ride his stick? Was he the first guy to ride his stick, and have you ever seen it ever again? Uh, I think it has been done since uh, the odd time, but as far as I know, that Tiger was the first one to do it, certainly so prominently as he did when the Canucks were back in Toronto after Tiger had been traded. He was such a high-profile player in Toronto, and the Canucks go back into Maple Leaf Gardens, and the Vancouver Canucks have had great success against the Toronto Maple Leafs ever since day one, and they won a lot of games at Maple Leaf Gardens, and then even in the the Air Canada Center. But at that time, Tiger came back into Toronto, and there was a lot of reaction to his return as a member of the opposition. And when he scored a goal in Toronto, he got on his hockey stick and rode it down the ice like a uh, like a kid riding a, a pony and uh, waving at the fans. And the Canucks later ran that as a cover on a Canuck program, which is, I imagine, quite a valuable piece of sports memorabilia but that was the first time we saw it and uh, I think it's probably been done a few times since what did players say to each other when fighting like for instance when Rutu got traded to Pittsburgh he was asked to fight with Shane O'Brien and he said to Shane O'Brien who are you because he didn't recognize him did any players talk to each other during fights? What did they say to each other? Well, it all depends on the players. I'm sure what uh, they said to each other would not be, uh, you know, suitable for broadcast uh, because, they'd, you know, there was a lot of anger involved and uh, temper. And uh, But there were also some uh, characters who were great needlers, and I think one of the probably best was Garth Butcher, a Vancouver Canuck defenseman who later was traded to St. Louis and then played in Quebec. And uh, Butch had a, quite a, uh, a reputation for coming up with uh, funny lines to opposing players and officials and especially opposing players when they were skating by the bench, I guess. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure there were things said that uh, no one else knew about, just the two guys involved. But uh, there's some of those hockey fights were stage to a degree, but most of them were out-and-out anger, so uh, a lot of things would be said that uh, you wouldn't want to repeat. What about Terry O'Reilly chasing Chris Olufsen around Boston Garden? 
Yeah, I heard about that. Uh, in fact, I heard uh, Nardwar bring that up in one of his interviews with Don Cherry. Uh, but, of course, O'Reilly was an extremely tough player. And Chris Adelson was a pretty competitive guy, but he wasn't a you know, a big, tough guy like uh, O'Reilly. But I, I thought that was when they might have been teammates in Boston. I can't remember that particular incident when the Canucks were involved. But Chris was with Boston and then was traded to Vancouver in a high-profile trade with Bobby Schmatz going the other way. And uh, Chris, uh, I remember getting in a fight in Chicago with uh, uh, Keith Magnuson, who's one of the nicest guys in hockey, but also a guy who used to fight a lot. Now, unfortunately, deceased, killed in a car accident a few years ago. But uh, they got into a fight in Chicago, and and Adelson had his jaw broken because uh, Magnuson had tape on his hands. And uh, when he hit uh, Adelson in the face with a punch, it broke Chris's jaw, and he was out of hockey for several weeks because of that injury. And it brought about a rule change in the NHL that a uh, player uh, wearing tape on his hands gets involved in uh, fisticuffs. He's suspended or banished from the game, and the rules... I'm sure we're affected by that punch thrown by Magnuson. But uh, I don't remember the uh, particular incident that you've uh, obviously done some homework on. The, but O'Reilly was really tough in Boston, and they were a tough uh, team and a tough place to play was the Boston Garden. What about Gino Ojek? Like Gino versus Glenn Anderson, where Gino loses most of his clothes, but he takes on the entire bench. Do you remember that one? And do you remember players losing all their clothes and taking on an entire bench? Well, the first time I saw a player taking on an entire bench was in the minor leagues at the old Vancouver Forum, which still stands at Hastings and Renfrew although there's no ice in it anymore, but that used to be the home of the Vancouver Canucks of the Western Hockey League and a, a big, tough defenseman from Nanaimo. Now, now the name is going to uh, escape me here, but uh, he was a longtime alderman in Nanaimo, and he was playing for uh, Vancouver, I guess, at that time, and he jumped right into the Spokane bench to take on the entire visiting team but uh, uh, so you see incidents like that once in a while. The one involving Gino Ochik, I think, it was against the St. Louis Blues, and uh, in the fight, his sweater was pulled off, and uh, so he was had his shoulder pads ripped off, and uh, he was uh, from the waist up was pretty well unprotected, but still wailing away. Of course, Gino was extremely tough, uh, excellent fighter, and at that time. There were a lot more fights than there are today, and, and Gino won an awful lot of them. But uh, that did happen once in a while. But, uh, uh, you know, the players uh, are much more controlled now with the rule changes, and you don't see as many of those wild incidents as you used to. Well, Jim Robson, what about the coaches? Did they start in fights intentionally? Like, for instance, Harry Neal, didn't he start an intentional fight with fans? Well, Harry got involved in more than one. In uh, One night in Denver, the Canucks were leading in a close game, 3-2, to two, I think it was, and late in the game, Denver, then the Colorado Rockies, they were called at that time, 
were dominating the play, and Glenn Hanlon in goal for Vancouver was standing on his head, and the play was being very one-sided, and and all of a sudden there was a big scuffle at the Vancouver bench, and Harry had got into a disagreement with some fan, and uh, and, and the fan I think poured beer on Harry, so there was quite a an uproar at the Vancouver bench. So the officials stopped the game, and while this was going on, and uh, and it was a, a good way to give Hanlon a break and a rest and to settle the Canucks down, and they went on to hang on and win the game. But the most famous incident that Harry was involved in was in Quebec City in 1982 when uh, there was a heckling fan that was getting on Harry Neal and the Vancouver players. And and finally, in those days, the glass around the players' bench and uh, around the boards was much lower than it is today. So a player could climb over that glass into the stands, which used to happen once in a while. And Harry went into the stands after this fan, and some of the Canuck players went in there along with him. And the league suspended Harry Neal for 10 games. So the assistant coach, Roger Nielsen, took over, and the Canucks went on a, a winning streak. And much to Harry's credit, when his suspension ended, he said... We won't change things. We'll just leave it the way it is, leave Roger running the team at the bench. And Harry stepped aside, and, and that was the year the Canucks went to the Stanley Cup final. But there were several incidents and uh, players going into the stands. In Vancouver, we had a bad one when the Philadelphia Flyers and the Canucks were in a brawl, and some of the Philadelphia players went into the bench, and one decked a policeman, and some of the uh, Philadelphia players were charged with assault and appeared in court and I think got suspended sentences. But that all started because a, a player named Don Seleski was fighting a young Vancouver player named Barry Wilcox, who was from Queensborough, played about 30 games for the Canucks. And uh, this uh, Philadelphia player had Wilcox's sweater twisted around his throat, which is done once in a while. A strong guy would just twist the sweater and almost choke the opponent. And uh, Seleski, who had long blonde hair, had Wilcox in trouble, and a fan ran down from his seats on the west side of the Coliseum, reached over the glass, and pulled Seleski's hair. And when he did that, then the Philadelphia players, at least some of them, wheeled and started swinging their sticks at spectators and went into the stands. So those things happened once in a while, but uh, they now have higher glass and tougher rules, and hopefully we won't see those things anymore. And we're speaking here to Jim Robson, and the phone number is 604-UBC-CITR or 822-2487-UBC-CITR, uh, 822-2487, area code 604, or tweet at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. And we actually have a question for you from Dan Foran. Jim, awesome to hear Hockey Hall of Famer Jim Robson played hockey with your son at Carisdale and did musicals with your daughter at UBC. Legend. Yeah. Well, of course, a lot of your audience is so young they wouldn't remember when I was working, but uh, it's a pleasure to hear that somebody responded like that. But our daughter Jennifer went to UBC and was involved in theater out there. And uh, 
Our other daughter, Stephanie, also could sing and was in school productions at Prince of Wales High School. And Rob, of course, played in the band at uh, Prince of Wales. And the hockey player at Caresdale Arena was Mike, our uh, youngest son, who's an electrician out at UBC, actually. And uh, Mike played hockey at Caresdale Arena up until he was 16, I guess. And so uh, he was the only one in our family that really got involved in sports. But they all had different interests, and there always was an interest in music in the family. But Mike was the one who played hockey. And we, of course, had Jim Robson Jr., Rob Robson, to begin the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. And again, we have Jim Robson live on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. And winding up here with Jim, actually, Jim, I was curious. Jen has said that you, Jim, remember the score of the game you broadcast more than her birth weight of when she was actually born. I think I remember her birth weight. I think it was seven pounds, eight ounces. But uh, I took uh, my wife to the hospital. Then it was uh, the Vancouver General Hospital at that year, 1958. It was in July, uh, July 18th, actually. And Bill Stevenson was the regular play-by-play man of the Vancouver Mounties baseball team, but he was in Kelowna with the BC Lions training camp. So I was doing the baseball. So I dropped off my wife at the hospital, at the maternity ward. I drove to then was called Capilano Stadium, now Nat Bailey Stadium. And I broadcast a baseball game between the Vancouver Mounties and the Phoenix Giants, a farm team of the new San Francisco Giants. And Vancouver won the game 4-3. to three. A player named Charlie White, a popular Vancouver catcher, hit a home run to win the game in the ninth inning. And after the game, I went back home to my residence, and then the phone rang about quarter to 12 midnight, and Dr. Shire says, you you can come up to the hospital. You're the proud uh, father of a beautiful baby girl, and your wife and the baby are doing fine. So uh, I remember that night very well. And we have actually a question from all the way from Toronto, Ontario, from Greg Diamond. Greg actually wrote the hockey, well, he loves hockey, and he wrote the book Mondo Canuck, all about Canadian pop culture. That's what I was asking you, Jim, was like, you must have bumped into a lot of people during the 1960s on the airplane, because Canucks didn't necessarily fly charter, so you must have bumped into a lot of entertainment figures. Uh, I, I do you keep up on the pop culture you know, scene? Well, I don't really, but now that you mention it, I did get to know a famous, a very famous entertainer, a tremendous talent, Michael Bublé. And I was at a, a sports dinner, and I had to introduce Michael, who was a teenager in his late teens at that time, but he was singing at a club on Granville Street. And I was co-MC at this fundraising dinner, with Jackson Davies, who played Constable Constable on the uh, on the uh, television series that was so popular, and so I said, "Who is this Michael Bublé?" And Jackson said, "Oh, he's a young singer, and he's really good. He's 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 an up and comer." So I introduced several people in the audience, and I introduced Michael Bublé. So after that uh, introduction and after the dinner, this young man comes up to me, and it was Michael Bublé. And uh, we had a little talk, and then he said, well, I actually met you when I was eight years old. 
And I said, oh, I don't remember that. And he said, well, I was on a flight to Disneyland. The Vancouver Canucks were in the plane. We flew char uh, regular scheduled flights, and we were on our way to Los Angeles for a game. And he said, I came and asked for your autograph, and you took my autograph page and the pen, and I asked Michael, do you want the player's autographs? And he said, yes. So I turned and handed it to the players behind me, and I said, sign this book and pass it on. So all the players signed Michael's notebook or whatever it was he had. And I didn't remember that, but Michael remembered it. So we've had some contact with Michael over the years. And, of course, he's a tremendous talent and, and a superstar. Unbelievable. And, and so I have a lot of his CDs and a couple of them he signed for me. And uh, that was a special uh, connection. And here is the question from Greg Diamond. Again, people can tweet at at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. And the question from Greg is, my question is, how would he describe Vancouver's rivalry with the Buffalo Sabres early on? How would the Canucks been different if they had landed Gilbert Perrault? Well, I'm probably one of the few that would say that Gilbert Perrault flourished in Buffalo and probably would not have had as much success in Vancouver. I say that because he was uh, from, Valley, uh, from Quebec and uh, coming out to the West Coast 2,500 miles away from home uh, was, I think, a different uh, culture and a different time. That We had some French-Canadian players in the Canucks lineup at that time, like Andre Boudria and Roser Paymont. But uh, Buffalo, I think, was a better spot for uh, the great uh, Perrault, and he wound up on a terrific line with uh, Rennie Robert and uh, Rick Martin. And so I, I, it was a spin of the wheel that determined who got first pick in the 1970 draft, and uh, the wheel stopped at 11, and the uh, president of the NHL, Clarence Campbell, said uh, it's, uh, I don't know, he, whatever number, he thought it was 10 or something, and he said, so Vancouver wins the first pick, and all the guys at the Vancouver bench jumped in excitement. This is the table at the draft meetings, and Hal Lakel, the coach especially, was just excited because everybody knew that Perot would be the first pick. And then Punch Imlock, who was the general manager of the new Buffalo team, calmly stood up and said, uh, Mr. Campbell, take a closer look at that. Is that not on number 11? And Campbell looks and said, oh, you're right, Mr. Emlock. So Buffalo gets the first pick. And that's why Gilbert Perot wore number 11. But uh, the next uh, prominent player that was the number two pick overall, and everybody had him at that high spot, was Dale Talon. So Vancouver took Dale Talon, who was a very good NHL player. And he had some good uh, seasons with Vancouver, especially his rookie year, had 56 points as a rookie, and uh, then was then traded on and had about a 10- or 12-year NHL career, but have, had some serious injuries and, of course, wasn't uh, the player that Gilbert Perot was. But uh, that's how Perot war 11, and that's how close Vancouver came to taking him in the draft. Whether or not he would have been as successful in Vancouver, I don't know. He had tremendous talent. Harry Neal always said he's one guy that could beat you one on five. But uh, we'll never know.
Jim Robson, what about Henry Bouchard? He wore a headband. He must have been easy to spot. You know, headband. What do you think about a headband? There's a Henry Boucher, I believe, was it? Or Bouchard. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. Boucher, yeah. Yeah, B-O-U-C-H-A, I think. Uh, sort of a uh, colorful journeyman player. But, uh, well, no, I, there wasn't too much of that. But, of course, players didn't wear helmets then. So if you had long hair, the... They might have a headband to keep it under control, but you know, guys with long hair that like Ron Duguay and Guy Lafleur and that they didn't wear headbands, but it was pretty rare. And uh, there were some characters in all teams that now there are today too, but perhaps more in those days. What about players with unusual equipment? For instance, there was recently a player with two blockers, a goalie with two blockers. What did you see along the lines of unusual equipment? Well, I can't uh, just think of anything offhand. I can remember the masks, of course, were just coming in. That when I was my early years, a lot of the goalies didn't wear masks, and uh, then they started to get them painted with team colors. And the first uh, noticeable mask, I guess, was worn by Boston goalie Jerry Cheevers, who was a great goaltender, and. Uh, Every time he got hit in the face with a shot, at the end of the game, he would mark in on the mask where stitches would have been had he been playing without a mask. So not long after the season started, his mask was covered with uh, marked stitches uh, to look where he would have had stitches without the mask. So that was one of the famous masks. And of course, now they're wonderful artwork on the masks, and they're much better than they used to be. And, but as far as the special equipment goes, I can't uh, remember anything particular. But when you look at the goaltenders especially, it's so different than it used to be, those little skinny pads they used to wear. And and uh, now they have the, the big trapper they catch the puck with is so huge and heavy. And those big leg pads, and they're six foot six, and stretch those legs out, and there's hardly any place to shoot the puck. What do you think about rules that were developed in front of your own eyes? And me watching hockey, I saw the Sean Avery rule play out, like he waved his stick right in front of the goalie. Right, I think it was in front of Brodeur. What do you think of the Sean Avery rule? And did you see rules developed in front of your eyes? Well, Avery was uh, it was uh, the the goaltender you mentioned that Avery did, and Avery, of course, was such a wild and crazy guy, and that's in recent times. So, yeah, there. Are Roger Nielsen actually affected the rules of hockey quite a bit when he was coaching, especially in junior hockey. Uh, he was coaching the Toronto uh, Marlboros, uh, or no, I guess he was coaching Peterborough, and they were playing the Toronto Marlboros, and uh, they were hanging on to a lead late in the game. And uh, so when they, his team lost possession of the puck, he threw a player on the ice, and the play was stopped for too many men on the ice. So they put the man in the penalty box and play started up again. And then as soon as lost possession again, he threw another guy on the ice. And they wound up with about five or six players in the penalty box in the last two minutes and hung on to win the game. Well, after that, they changed the rules so that if you get called with too many men on the ice in the last two minutes, it's a penalty shot. Another thing that Roger did, he'd tell his goaltender, when you're coming out of the game for a sixth attacker late in the game, 
uh, pile up the snow along the goal line in the goal crease, lay your goal stick in it along the goal line, and then come to the bench so that if the opposition shoots at the empty net, there's a good chance it will hit the stick and stay out. And uh, that, of course, was now penalized, so they can't do that. So Roger kept uh, thinking of different ways to get around the rules, and that affected uh, the future rules of the game. But there's been so many changes over the years, and especially in recent years, and there's been some good changes like icing the puck. You can't make a uh, change in the lineup. And, uh, you know, I think there's quite a few of the recent rules that have been uh, very successful. We have a question, and we're speaking here to Jim Robson, 604-822-2487, or tweet at Nardwar, and this comes from Martin Strong. And Martin asks you, Jim, ask him about the bottle of cognac he was supposed to open when the Canucks won the Stanley Cup. Well, as we speak, I can look right at it. It's a Cavassier bottle in a gun carriage which was a, was a two-wheeled gun carriage, and the bottle was in a rack, and it made it look like a cannon. And when I left CKWX in 1970, they had a farewell luncheon for me, and they presented me with this bottle of cognac, and I said, I will open this when the Vancouver Canucks win the Stanley Cup. Well, of course, it went on and on, and they got to the final in 82, they got the final in 94, and in 94, when we're going back to New York for Game 7, we'd sort of tentatively arranged to book an Italian restaurant to have a special meal with some of my old hockey connections with the Canucks and have my guys come out and we'd open the cognac. But Vancouver did not win the Stanley Cup, so the cognac remained closed. Finally, I retired in 1999 and at a uh, hockey old-timers golf tournament, then called the Cyclone Taylor Golf Tournament, I uh, opened the cognac, and uh, any members of the original Canuck team of 1970 who were in attendance came up and shared it with me. Pat Quinn, George Gardner, Phil Maloney, Orlan Kirkenback, Bud Poyle, and Greg Douglas and myself. Well, uh, of course, Pat Quinn, George Gardner, and Bud Poyle have all passed on, but we popped open the cognac, and uh, then they passed it around the tables at the dinner. So I said, well, and they, the Canucks still haven't won the Stanley Cup, but I can't keep it corked any longer. So we popped it open that, on that occasion. Winding up here with Jim Robson. Jim, some names I want to throw out at you. Eric Nestorenko, he, believe it or not, is like my distant cousin. What do you think of Eric Nestorenko? Do you remember him? Also, Lair, Lars Zetterstrom and Claire Alexander, the Milkman. Well, Claire Alexander, the Milkman, played with the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I guess at the time he was came to the NHL, he had been playing senior amateur hockey, and to augment his limited income, he delivered milk. So that's where his nickname came from. And he eventually was traded, uh, played briefly with the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Lars Zetterberg was one of uh, five Swedish players in the Canucks brought in at a time when not many teams had Swedish players, but Canucks 
had uh, Thomas Gradeen and Lars Lindgren and Lars Moline and uh, I'm going to run out of... Uh, Roland Erickson, I think, was one of them. I remember uh, they did an Roland ad... Roland Erickson, yeah, he came a little bit later. Uh, he wasn't in that original group. But I remember we had the training camp in Duncan and they had these five Swedes uh, on the cover of a Canuck program all dressed like uh, Vikings. And, of course, uh, some of them were great players. Thomas Gradeen, one of the greatest centers the Canucks have ever had. And Lars Lindgren was a very good defenseman here. Lars Zetterstrom didn't play here long. He played here some. He did play long enough to do an ad for Ikea. I remember that. Well, you got a better memory than I have, but uh, it's a natural connection, Ikea and the Swedes. But uh, and there was another player you mentioned that I, oh, Narek Nesterenko was most more prominent before my time. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, there was a big goal scored in a, a game in Chicago against Cesar Maniego when uh, Bobby Hull was credited with, I guess it was his 51st goal of the season, something like that. It was a milestone goal, maybe his 500th. And uh, Cesar maintained to this day that Ner- Nestorenko cut across in front of him and tipped that shot into the net. But the Chicago Stadium was erupting and going crazy with Bobby Hull scoring this record-breaking goal, so there's no way that the official was going to change it to Nestorinko. Another thing I was wondering, are there, Jim Robson, any Canucks stickers still left that you put on Zambonis left sticking? Yeah, I uh, still have a few of those old stickers. But we went on the road. You'd go to the morning skate to watch both teams practice. I think the Russians really introduced that uh, tradition in hockey. They didn't used to do that, but then the players would have a morning skate and get their sticks ready and everything ready for the game that night. And so I would hang around where the Zamboni came on the ice, and at the end of the home team's morning skate, which went first, the Zamboni would go on and uh, resurface the ice for the visiting team, and then it would come off the ice at the and I would stand there at the end of the rink and I would take a Canuck decal and stick it on the side of the Zamboni but on the opposite side of the seat that the driver used so the driver wouldn't see me doing this and I would I didn't do it in every rink but I did it quite a few places and then when the game was on that night I'd be in between periods or something interviewing somebody those days I worked alone and I would point out to my guest, I'd say, look down there on the uh, the Zamboni here in Philadelphia or whatever, there's a Canuck Deckel on the Philadelphia Zamboni. And I got away with it quite a bit. And then when I got caught in Buffalo one time, one of the guys working for the arena saw me do this and uh, told me to take it off. And so I discontinued the practice. But I got away with it for a while. Are any still sticking? Like, are any still there at arenas? No. The equipment has changed so much. Uh, Now they have uh, two Zambonis working at one time and more modern equipment and and probably better security, so you couldn't get away with something like that. And I'm sure there's none of those decals around. Uh, Jim Robson, winding up here, Rosier Paymond, he was treated by Ravine? Uh, Yeah, I think uh, he had a slump in his second year. He had a great first year with the Canucks in 1970-71 season. Uh, He scored at least 30 goals on a line with 
uh, Andre Boudria and Paul Popiel. It was a very good forward line, and Rosie was very popular here. The crackling Rosie song that Neil Diamond had was was the hit that they played when Rosie's name came up, and I think there was even written a song about him, about Rosaire Paymont, but he suffered a quite a bad eye injury in his second year here, and he was in quite a slump, and they tried ver- various things to try and get out of his slump, and I think uh, Greg Douglas, who then was the uh, uh, several titles with the Canucks, but he was the media relations guy, among other things, and I think he probably arranged this for publicity, maybe, that uh, Ravine, this uh, magician who worked on stage, was coming into town to perform at the Orpheum Theater, I guess, and I think he tried to get Ravine to work on Rosie, to work on his mind, to get him a more positive attitude and get him to break a slump. I don't remember whether it worked or not. What do you think, Jim, about the idea of scoring on yourself? Like, actually, scoring on yourself when you are shorthanded, and then you have a better chance to get the equalizing goal. Well, I've seen guys score on themselves. This has happened a few times, but uh, never intentionally. One of the most memorable ones was Lars Lindgren, the Canucks are playing the Oilers in Edmonton. This was before overtime, so there were tie games. And the Canucks were leading Edmonton 3-2 late in the game. There was a face-off in the Vancouver zone. Uh, Ken Ellicott was a young goaltender in the nets for Vancouver. And the Canucks won the face-off cleanly. Lars Lindgren then turned and whistled the puck he hoped behind the Vancouver net and around on the boards to ring it around to clear it out of the Vancouver zone in the last minute of the game. But when he went to shoot it for the back of the net, he miscalculated and snapped it just inside the post past a startled Ellicott into the net. And that gave Edmonton a 3-3 tie. And after the game, uh, Lars Lindgren was asked, uh, you know, about this unfortunate goal, and he blamed the stick boy. He said, the kid gave me a shooting stick instead of a defensive stick, and so it was his fault. And of course, it was all tongue-in-cheek, but Lindgren was a very good player, but that's uh, one incident that he would just as soon forget. In fact, he works for the Canucks now as a scout in Sweden. Jim Robinson, what did players eat in between periods? Did they eat steak? Like, I know at the old Coliseum, you had an amazing fish and chips place in the basement. What did players eat for, you know, in between periods? I don't think they'd eat anything between periods. I was never in the dressing room to know. But uh, they would drink uh, a lot of water, I guess, and chew gum, and but... uh, the pregame meal for the longest time, and that's changed quite a bit because now they have experts, uh, nutritionalists, telling them what to eat. They eat pastas and seafood, and, and they eat early in the afternoon of the day of the game. In the earlier years, they would have uh, the pregame meal about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They'd have a uh, sirloin steak, then medium. They'd have a baked potato with uh, sour cream and bacon bits and butter. They would have a... a a regular salad with the Thousand Island dressing, and they would drink all kinds of Coca-Cola or Pepsi. 
and they would also have as a dessert vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce. That was almost, a, especially in the minor leagues, that was your traditional pregame meal. But now I'm sure the nutritionists would shake their heads and say, well, you eat earlier in the day to digest it properly before the game, and also they would have a very strict diet. And now the Canucks, for example, have a full-time chef or maybe more than one at the arena that work there at the day of the game and at the, in practices too, and the players can come off the ice and have a meal in the uh, Rogers Arena, and especially good for the the young players who are bachelors and and, and aren't cooks. And uh, so, a lot of things have changed, including the diets for the players. Jim, what about you personally advertising cigarettes? Yeah, I'm not proud of that. But in 1970, when the NHL came to Vancouver, Players Cigarettes were a sponsor. I think all over Canadian uh, hockey, in those days the only Canadian NHL teams were Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. And so we had a, a short commercial message on the hockey broadcast uh, for Player Cigarettes. It was just like a one- or two-line plug for players, and uh, I read that on the air. But I never smoked, and uh, I think if I had more uh, courage or clout at the time, I said, no, I'm not going to do a cigarette commercial. But I did everything I was asked to do, believe me. And Jim, I was curious about smoking because it wasn't that uncommon to smoke. For instance, Al Alfredi, um, Lafleur, did they smoke on the bench? And also, wasn't there like a huge, huge haze by the third period at the old Coliseum? Like the movable bleachers, there was like smoke in arenas. Oh, yes, there was a lot of smoke in the arenas. People smoked a lot, and especially in Quebec and uh, Quebec City and Montreal. But the players uh, didn't smoke on the bench, but certainly they smoked between periods. Uh, Guy Lafleur and I remember Pierre LaRouche. I had to go downstairs for something. I can't remember what the situation was, but I went between periods walking by the Pittsburgh dressing room, and there was LaRouche standing outside there puffing away on a cigarette between periods. So the players did smoke, but not in the dressing room, I don't think, but certainly out just outside, and uh, but not on the bench. I don't think I ever saw that. But it was pretty common for uh, spectators to smoke and you can see pictures of the Coliseum, and by the third period, you can hardly see across the ice with there's so much smoke in the air. And it was even worse in the older rinks in the minor leagues. Uh, there was a lot of drinking and smoking going on in those games. We have a last question for you, Jim Robson. And thank you for phoning in to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. This is from... Actually, this is from Bill, and Bill says, ask him, meaning Jim Robson, who your favorite play-by-play man was. I think Jim Hewson, who does the current NHL play, in fact, he's the number one guy in Hockey Night in Canada. Jim Hewson is the best play-by-play man of today, and Jim Hewson is the best hockey play-by-play announcer of all time. And I mention that to people, and they say, oh, I don't know about that. And I say, okay, who's better? And the other names come up. Uh, One is like Bob Cole, who's done so many games for so long. He has the best voice 
in broadcasting hockey. But Bob seems to only know about a third of the players, if that. He doesn't call a game, in my mind, as nearly as well as Jim Hewson. And there's other good announcers. I think Rick Ball, who does the games in Calgary now, who was in Vancouver doing the Lions games, is excellent. And uh, there are a lot of good ones in the United States. Canadians seem to think that all the good hockey announcers are Canadian, but there's some very good ones in the United States as well. We don't get a chance to hear. Was there only money, Bill, uh, Jim Hewson's the best. Was there only Foster Hewitt when you were growing up? Like, who did you look towards? Was there only Foster Hewitt? Well, Foster Hewitt is the most famous of all, and because he was the first. Uh, he wasn't the first to do a hockey game on radio. There was another man who did a game just before him. I can't remember who it was, but Foster became the first one to do National Hockey League on radio and in the 30s, and I, uh, as a youngster, lived in Saskatchewan, and we would listen on Saturday night and would always get the Toronto Maple Leaf games although I didn't like the Maple Leafs. I was a Boston fan. We're talking about 1940 or something. But Foster Hewitt established the terminology. He was the first to be nationally known as a hockey announcer. So he really blazed the trail. Uh, as, but I think the most popular of all time was Danny Gallivan, a real a wonderful man, a nice guy, and uh, a unique style. And also to... Uh, you know, I was a little jealous of him because he got to be the voice of the Montreal Canadiens when they dominated and won like five Stanley Cups in a row, won four in a row another time, had all kinds of Hall of Fame players. So Danny had the joy of uh, broadcasting all those great Montreal games. And just like uh, Rod Phillips in Edmonton had those great oiler teams with Wayne Gretzky. And every time I'd see Rod, I'd say, Gretzky! You know, and she used to say over and over. And uh, so there were a lot of good announcers in the business. Dan Kelly was very good in St. Louis. Uh, but I think Jim Houston's the best. Derlego and Vive, were they traded because they were partiers? Uh, that is uh, the sort of popular uh, opinion of the, t- of the day. Uh they were traded for Tiger Williams and Jerry Butler, and many said that. I know Harry Neal, was, who uh, made that trade as a general manager of the Canucks, was criticized because Rick Vive went on to become the first 50-goal scorer for the Toronto Maple Leafs and scored a lot of goals and was a very good player. Billy Derlega was a good player but had uh, injury problems and then be- had some off-ice problems, and uh, his career wasn't as good as it looked like it was going to be. But uh, Tiger Williams, of course, uh, was prominent for the Canucks. Jerry Butler was a sort of a fourth-line checking player, so was not a prominent player. So many were critical of that trade, critical of the Canucks. But Harry Neal always said, well, we went to the Stanley Cup final with Tiger Williams and the Leafs haven't been in the Stanley Cup Finals since 1967, the last time they won a cup. So he thought getting Williams was a, a very key move for the Toronto, uh, for the Vancouver Canucks at that time. Jim Robson, Richard Loney doing the anthem, or Roger Doucette doing the anthem? Well, I had, uh, in fact, my son Rob will have it now in his, uh, I hope he still has it, a record collection. Uh, a long play recording of Roger Doucette of Montreal doing all kinds of different nationalities, uh, different national anthems. 
and he signed it for me when I was in Montreal, and so I have his long play recording. And we also had a long play recording of Richard Loney, which was very popular here, singing Christmas songs. And, of course, Loney was a real tradition here in Vancouver, a great guy and a terrific vocalist. And uh, now they ha don't seem to have, at least here, uh, a same vocalist for every game. I think they have some wonderful talent, though, that perform the anthem before the games, but they rotate uh, various singers, although, of course, uh, uh, the opera singer who does most of the Canuck games is the guy that everybody enjoys, I think, the most. But uh, it uh, changed somewhat. Now they use a variety of people, but... Uh, I was I knew both Mr. Doucette in Montreal and of course I knew Richard Loney in Vancouver. What about Henry Irizawa, the CBC director? Henry's still working. He now lives uh, semi-retired in Comox, but he and Larry Isaac worked together for decades. I've worked for BC TV when I worked with them, but actually before that I with Hockey Night in Canada. Henry was doing uh, work for the CBC and Hockey Night in Canada, and then they were at BC TV for a long time. Uh, they're excellent people in the, in the field. They worked a lot of international sporting events in the Olympics and various sports. Uh, they worked together and uh, both behind the scenes and get very little recognition, uh, but they uh, were excellent professionals to work with. And I always enjoyed working with uh, both Larry and Henry, they would hardly say a word. You have headset on, and you get directions from the, the truck uh, where the technical people are working, and the, direct, the director will give you information or tell you what's coming up and things like that. But uh, those guys hardly said a word. They would let you do the job, and very seldom would you hear anything in your headset when they were working. But they were outstanding professionals and still are. They do... Uh, I think the Edmonton games on TV, they don't work in Vancouver anymore, but they're working on the prairies. Can you, Jim Robson, do an imitation of Howie Meeker at all? Golly gee whiz. Wind it right back, fellas. I talked to Howie once in a while. He's doing okay. He's over on Vancouver Island at French Creek. He's still got the firmest handshake you've ever had, and uh, he's a... I guess he's 93 maybe now, uh, and, and wonderful character, uh, a great Canadian, wounded in World War II, uh, outstanding National Hockey League player with the Toronto Maple Leafs, and a legend in Newfoundland where he worked for many years, and uh, of course the color commentator wound up going in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and a great guy. But I guess everybody takes a run at... Uh, trying to sound like Howie Meeker, which is a compliment to Howie. We are going to end now, Jim, with a whole bunch of hockey records, and I played a whole bunch of hockey records last week. For instance, people have quite a reaction to the Canucks theme song. In fact, somebody tweeted at Nardwar, as a Blackhawks fan, you can see my disgust for this record when I tweeted out a picture of the Canucks were with you. Do you remember that record, that oh, hockey yeah. record? It, it was awful. It uh, was not a hit. Uh, Canucks were with you, were really, really with you. Oh, boy, it was pretty bad. But anyway, it, they, uh, they tried it. Uh, about mid-70s, I think it was. And uh, 
it didn't last very long. It was a Canucks theme song of 74-75. Well, that was a good team. Phil Maloney took over at that time, and uh, that was the first Vancouver team to get to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And uh, so they were, they were a popular team. Uh, Gary Smith was outstanding in goal that season. Should have been the Hart Trophy winner, really. Bobby Clark won the trophy, but when he was presented with the Hart Trophy, he said there was a goalie in Vancouver who could have won this award. But uh, that song was not one of the most memorable things of 1975. And another record I'm going to play is King Richard. We're going to take you two to top. Do you remember that? King Richard's Army. It was another record. Well, uh, Richard Berdour, who uh, had a fantastic uh, run to the Stanley Cup final in 1982, one of Jake Milford's great steals in a deal. Uh, I think it was a fifth-round draft pick to the Islanders for the uh, rights to Richard Berdour. And uh, he was very popular, too, and there were songs written about him. And they don't seem to do that anymore, but uh, the music world has changed a lot. But uh, there was a Rosaire Paymont song, I think, in the early 70s, and Andre Boudria, Super Pest, I think there was a song about him. And uh, I, I don't really remember the Richard Berdour song, but I can understand why it was done at that time. Oh, we are going to play that for sure to listeners. There also is hockey with a little help from your friends, the Vancouver Canucks, and it featured Bob Daly, Phil Maloney. Do you remember that record at all? Hockey with a little help from your friends. No, I don't remember that, but uh, Bob Daly died just about a week or 10 days ago. And he, was only, he was only 62 years old. He was living in Florida. And uh, he was a, a good young defenseman the Canucks drafted and later traded to Philadelphia for Jack McElhargy, actually. And, uh, and of course, Phil Maloney I know well and lives at uh, Cedar uh, in Vancouver Island by Yellow Point, a beautiful home on the water. Uh, Phil is in his late 80s. And, uh, of course, I got to know him way back when he was a star with the Vancouver Canucks of the Western League. But I don't remember that song, but... Uh, Actually, that wasn't ins- too long. that was an instructional record, um, oh. pretty much. Rest in peace, Bob Daly, too. And we have another tweet from Greg Diamond, author of Mondo Canuck, and he said he have a record. He has a record called Great Moments of Hockey, hosted by Jack Dennett, and it's a history of Hockey Night in Canada, and your voice is on it, circa 1971. Vinyl! Well, Jack Dennett was the first man I worked with on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, When Vancouver came in the league, they wanted a, a Western presence for the few Vancouver games that were on TV, it was mostly Toronto and Montreal, but the Canucks were on half a dozen Saturdays a year. And uh, so they sent Jack Dennett out from Toronto to sit with me. And those days, uh, it wasn't really a color man. He didn't say a lot. A really nice guy to work with, a nice man, a wonderful voice, very prominent announcer in Toronto. And uh, so I worked with Jack in my first year with Hockey Night in Canada in 1970. We do have another question, this finally. It's kind of um, a bit morose, but it says, what about the story of Brian Spencer's dad getting shot because the Canucks were broadcast instead of the Leafs? Yes, uh, Brian Spencer's dad lived in uh, Fort 
St. James, I think it was, in northern B.C., and the nearest CBC uh, studio was in Prince George, and uh, it was a Saturday night, and Brian Spencer had just been called up from the Central League to play with the Toronto Maple Leafs, so his dad wanted to see his son make his NHL debut and was expecting to see him on Hockey Night in Canada, but instead, because they split the network to run a a Vancouver, a California Seals game, I think it was, uh, on a, and I would have been doing that game, and I must have been awfully poor to upset Mr. Spencer that much, but uh, he got in his uh, truck and drove uh, a considerable distance into the studio in Prince George, I think it was, and went in there with a gun, I believe, and uh, it... Uh, it was a, a very serious incident that I think resulted in Mr. Uh, Spencer's death. And uh, that was, uh, I guess, about 19, probably 71, 72, somewhere in there. Uh, Jim, nowadays, where can people get hold of you? Did you go to that summit event that happened in Vancouver a couple days ago? No, I'm too cheap to buy a ticket. But I did have a, a couple of... Uh, uh, occasions to be in a panel with uh, some of the guys from that series when they were in Vancouver. Uh, the Vancouver Giants had a, a pregame panel with Gordy Howe was there, and uh, we also had Phyllis Bazito and Tony, or uh, rather uh, uh, Brent, uh, uh, Bobby Hall, uh, also uh, uh, Dennis Hall, and uh, Marcel Dion, there were quite a few prominent NHL players from the past in this panel, and I was part of it, Pat Quinn. So uh, we get to talk to some of those guys once in a while. Uh, Phil Esposito doesn't travel anymore, but he still works on the broadcasts in Tampa Bay. And uh, so we run into uh, some of these heroes of the past once in a while, and I always enjoy uh, having an opportunity to speak with them. I got to know some I got to know more, I think, after I retired, but uh, I didn't get to know a lot of the players personally, except those that played for Vancouver. Or the ones that some. sat beside you, right? Like a lot sat beside you. What was that? A lot sat beside you, Jim Robinson. Like you would be doing the play-by-play, and the players would be sitting right beside you. Yeah, I worked with uh, Gary Monahan, an ex-Canuck, uh, and played with the Leafs and Montreal and Detroit and Los Angeles, and he was a good color man to work with. And uh, uh, Ryan Walter, I worked with Ryan, and Darcy Rhoda, worked with him. So uh, ex-players often got the role of doing color on television especially. So, uh, and I always enjoyed it when I was on the road and I got to do a game with up in an area where the players that weren't dressed for the game sat. So sometimes I'd be doing a game and just a few feet away would be two or three players who weren't in the lineup for the home team, but they could hear the broadcast. So this gave me an opportunity for them to listen to my work, and I always tried to pride myself of being as close to neutral as I could. I was more excited when the Canucks scored than when the other team scored, but I tried to... uh, do a a neutral job and I think the Canadian audience likes that kind of a broadcast rather than sort of a cheerleader as we say and uh, so I like those opportunities when the player was sitting close by. 
thank you again for your time, Jim Robson. Really appreciate it. To prepare listeners for your appearance, I played last week a whole bunch of records, include hockey records, including the four pucks who said on August the 12th, I think 1974, there would be the roast of the Golden Jet. The roast of Bobby Hall. Did you go to the roast of the Golden Jet? No, I did not. I uh, there were roasts were very popular, and I took part in a few. But uh, no, I uh, I didn't. I got to know some of those players. And one of the highlights for me was when the All Star Game was played in Vancouver in 1977, I think it was. And uh, thanks to Bill Hughes uh, getting uh, my name involved, uh, the league let me introduce the All Stars at a banquet at the Bayshore Inn the night before the All-Star Game. So I got to meet a lot of the great stars of the 1970s, including Bobby Hull. And I, you know, I'd run into these guys from time to time. So I was uh, very pleased at that night to get to meet all these great players at that time. But I didn't go to a row outside of Vancouver. I, I did a lot of my work in Vancouver. I traveled with the Canucks, but I didn't do many other events outside Vancouver. Alan Thicke wrote Phil Esposito and the Ranger Rockers doing Hockey Sock Rock. Do you remember Hockey Sock Rock? It was, I think, well, actually, it was Phil Esposito, Phil Esposito, Ron Duguay, Pat Hickey, Dave Maloney, Dave Maloney, and John Davidson, plus, on the flip side of the record, Dion and the Puck Tones, which was Marcel Dion, Charlie Simmer, and Dave Taylor. That was a record that I played last week. Do you remember that record at all? No, I don't. You're going right uh, past me on these records, but I do. I did know all those three guys you mentioned, that great line in Los Angeles, uh, Marcel Dion, Dave Taylor, and uh, Charlie Simmer. Charlie did color commentary for many years after his playing career, a real fun guy and a, and a good color commentator. Uh, Dave Taylor has been an excellent hockey executive. And, of course, Marcel Dion was a great player, and you don't really get to know them too much when they're playing. But in his uh, retirement, I was in the Toronto at the Hockey Hall of Fame when he was inducted, and he was funny. He was a lot of fun. And so there'd be, uh, there were opportunities after he retired that we'd cross paths and get to talk to him. So I remember that group, but a lot of these records that uh, you haul out of your collection, I'm not familiar with. Do you, Jim Robson, look like David Bowie? Because Rob Robson, your son, says he looks like David Bowie, and that's part of the reason he is a Bowie imitator. Well, I never thought of that. I don't think I would, but I certainly Rob does. It's amazing how he dresses like him and looks like him and sounds like him. And, and as I said way earlier on this interview, I didn't even know Rob could sing, but he sings really well and puts a group together. His wife is part of the singing group with them, and they do a fantastic job. And uh, I don't, I've never been... Uh, I don't think there's anybody in entertainment that I uh, look like an SMB, maybe uh, Bugs Bunny. Well, thank you very much for your time, 
Jim Robson and Rob Robson, too, for phoning in at the top of the top. That's a real radio term of the Nardwara, the human serviette radio show. Um, why should Anything else you'd like to add? Why should people care about hockey? Why should people care about Jim Robson? Well, I don't know about Jim Robson, but the sport has a, a real hold on people, and not everyone, of course. Uh, you know, some people's life is more music, and some people's life is the stage. And uh, But there's a certain uh, segment of the population, and it's quite a large percentage, that are interested in sport and a wide variety of sport. Uh, television, of course, has had a major impact now in the uh, no matter what sport, whether it's golf or tennis or hockey, basketball, baseball, football, football's tailor-made for television. And so it's creating a lot of interest in sport, and especially when things like the Olympics come along, then nationalism takes over, and people get uh, much more nationalistic and interested in their own country's performance. So uh, I was fortunate to be involved as a broadcaster of sport, I didn't get stitches, I didn't work up a sweat, but I certainly was involved and enjoyed it. But it does have a, an effect, effect on people, and uh, fortunately for me, a lot of people were interested in it. Thank you so much for Jim. We are going to end with, Jim Robson, one of the worst songs you have ever heard, the theme song for the Vancouver Canucks 74. This is one of the worst songs you have ever heard, right? Yes, I agree with you on that. And thank you very much, Jim, for phoning in. And thank you, Rob, for phoning in, too, as well. And um, Jim Robson, you're a real legend. It's a pleasure to have you on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. Thank you so much. You are hockey in Vancouver and worldwide. Well, it's a real compliment uh, for you to say those things and have me on your show. Well, thanks so much, Jim. Keep on rocking in the free world and do-do-loo-doo. Almost, Jim. Do-do-loo-do. <laughs> well, appreciate the, the call. Almost, Jim. Do-do-loo-do. Do-do.
philosophy is for myself is always to just hit the net. Dig down a little deeper and work harder. That's where teamwork comes in. Hockey, with a little help from your friends, the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> We want to introduce you to the rage of South Porcupine, Ontario. This is Don Lever. Don plays forward for the Vancouver Canucks. And Don Lever travels in fast, fast company. Lever racing after it. Porche partially checked him. Lever cutting it on goal. Rolling in front. McCray stopped it. It's loose. It's loose, they score! Yeah, I was a goaltender until I was 12, and uh, I was in the outdoor rinks, so and my feet got so cold, I decided I'd go outside and start skating. This is Don Lieber. Okay, Don, what time do you think is the most important to really hustle in a practice, like near the beginning or middle of the end? Well, first of all, when you come out on a warm-up, Dave, is, the warm-up's most important. Get the groins loose, get a little bit of a sweat on, and you go through all your motions of... Uh, one-on-ones, two-on-ones, three-on-ones, and scrimmaging. And then when it comes to the end and you're getting a little bored about the last 10 minutes, that's when usually the skating is the best, just to dig down a little deeper and work harder. I guess it's different on goaltenders, but where should you shoot, really, on all goaltenders? I would say, like, again, it's the whole thing is coming into the goaltender and seeing where the goaltender is. Most of your shots, I think, are from about 40 feet out. And uh, the easiest place for a goaltender to stop the puck is around the knees. If you shoot the puck around the knees or from the knees to the shoulders, he just has to use his hands, which is very easy. So 80% um, of the time, I would say, you should shoot that puck on the ice because he's got to move his feet. It can hit a defenseman or hit your own player, easy to deflect. Whereas when you come in closer, you look at the goaltender and you fake or something and wait for him to go down, then get it up high. Right, it makes it difficult. When you shoot it up high, the goaltender has his glove hand or his stick hand, but if you shoot it on the ice, He's got to move his feet, and you've got a lot more of the, the net to shoot at. Most goaltenders now fall down spread eagle with uh, usually a V between their legs. So four places where uh, you should be learning to shoot the puck is at each corner, either along the ice, one, two, or three, four is up high, right? So whenever you're going in on a goaltender, always try instead of shooting at the goaltender, is shoot for the corners, always shoot for the corners. You know, and my philosophy is for myself is always to just hit the net because the goaltender's got to make the save. It's good to play uh, lines and, you know, you, you realize three guys play together fine. They play well together, but let's say you get uh, three great guys in one line and the other two lines are mediocre, it would be better off to put a guy in another line and balance your team off. That's where teamwork comes in. Okay, I'm a winger. Um, what should I be looking for? The most important thing when you're playing the wing is to m make sure you play the wing only, like stay up and down your wing. Three quarters of the game, perhaps, is defense, so that's the importance of playing your own wing, watching your winger. The rage of South Porcupine, Ontario. 